Welcome to episode 13 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Security Event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. In terms of the latest major news stories impacting the sector at present, legislation which underpins the work of MI5, the police service and other public authorities tackling serious crimes has just been introduced to Parliament. The Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill provides a clear and consistent statutory basis for a limited number of public authorities to continue to authorise participation in criminality in carefully managed circumstances. Undercover operatives and agents play a crucial role in preventing and safeguarding victims from the most serious crimes, among them terrorism. In order to gain the trust of those under investigation, there are occasions where they need to participate in criminality themselves. This is, in fact, a long-standing capability which remains critical for national security. The Covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill provides certainty to public authorities already using this critical capability and confirms a common set of safeguards by which they are bound, including compliance with human rights. Speaking about the matter, Security Minister James Brokenshire has stated, We owe a huge debt of gratitude to the men and women who put themselves in often dangerous situations in order to protect our national security and keep the public safe. In the course of this vital work, it may be necessary for agents to participate in criminal activity in order to gain the trust of those under investigation. This is a critical capability and subject to robust and independent oversight. It's important that those with the responsibility to protect the public can continue this work, knowing that they are on a sound legal footing to do so. Lynn Owens, Director General of the National Crime Agency, responded, We lead the UK's fight to cut serious and organised crime, focusing on the most determined criminals who dominate communities through violence linked to drugs and firearms supply, who abuse the vulnerable and who threaten the UK's economic security and institutions. Law enforcement has long used covert human intelligence sources to help thwart the most serious criminal threats to our nation and its partners. Owens went on to state, Only when it's absolutely necessary and proportionate will we authorise our covert human intelligence sources to be involved in a limited form of criminal activity. This is done with great care and scrutiny. Without this capability, we would not be able to bring to justice criminals and their groups who conspire to harm the UK and its citizens. We welcome this new legislation, which puts this crucial capability on a firm foundation. Robust independent oversight is provided by the Investigatory Powers Commissioner, namely Sir Brian Leveson, who carries out regular inspections and publishes an annual report on the findings for public consumption. This capability is supported by the courts, with the Investigatory Powers Tribunal in its recent supportive judgment on the use of covert human intelligence sources participation in criminal conduct, noting that the policy has been exercised with scrupulous care by the security service so as to discharge its essential functions in protecting national security, while also giving proper regard to the human rights of persons who may be affected by the activities of agents. Importantly, the Investigatory Powers Commissioner has also commented that, with regards to MI5, in every case that we examined, the activity authorised was proportionate to the anticipated operational benefits. The Security Institute's annual conference has been a long-standing highlight of the industry's calendar for many years now. In 2020, due to the ongoing impact of COVID-19, the event will necessarily be presented in a virtual format that can be attended free of charge. CPD points are available. Further, the conference has been scheduled to cover an entire week, commencing on Monday the 19th of October, with two presentations being delivered daily at 10am and 3pm. The virtual conference space will open at 9am on each day of the event, with delegates able to peruse the virtual exhibition hall and explore what systems are on offer from some of the industry's leading solution providers. Delegates can then take their seat in the virtual conference centre for the 10am sessions, all of which will be followed by an afternoon break and the chance for further browsing opportunities within the exhibition hall before the 3pm sessions begin. Following on from the highly successful 2019 event which ran under the banner of People-Centred Security, this year's theme 
centres on the science of security, with a range of expert speakers that represent the diversity to be found across the security sector. Science, of course, sits behind the majority of security practices and capabilities, some more obviously so than others. The annual conference's virtual sessions will highlight and explore some of the benefits science brings to individuals' ability to protect, influence and develop as security professionals. Speakers will present on topics that consider the importance of science in all aspects of security through engineering, psychology, technology, human factors, the impact of connectivity by dint of the Internet of Things, forensic sciences and the impact of space exploration. Speaking about this year's annual conference, the Security Institute CEO Rick Manfield stated, Although the circumstances for this year's annual event may be different, I'm excited to present the same high-quality opportunities for professional development with a lineup of industry-leading speakers from across the globe that we'll be announcing in the coming weeks. The Institute members and non-members are free to book their places and then pick and choose which of the sessions they wish to attend. Visit www.security-institute.org for booking details. Bookings will close on Thursday the 15th of October at noon. Our first guest on episode 13 of the Security Matters podcast is Mike Bluestone. Mike is the Director of Core Consult, the Security Consulting Investigations and Specialist Training Division of Core Security. A former Chair and current Vice President of the Security Institute, Mike has worked at Core Security since April 2010 and at a senior level in the private security world for the last 25 years. Mike is a Chartered Security Professional and gained a Master of Arts degree in Security Management from Loughborough University in 1999. Earlier this week, Mike and I chatted about several subject areas, among them diversity and equality in the security business sector, and also the register of chartered security professionals. First, Mike focuses his attentions on the impact that COVID-19 has exerted on security guarding here in the UK. Given the scale of the COVID crisis, Mike, what in your view has been the biggest impact on the UK security guarding sector to date? It's an important question. I think there are a few things here. I think the first thing is the the need to adapt very quickly to what was and still is an unprecedented and rapidly evolving crisis, which was um, and still is challenging some very established norms about the way the sector has been securing client premises and assets. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to apply innovation and new technology, um, which was not necessarily you know, security related, such as thermal screening devices uh, and other measures um, to um, counter the, the, the threat of, from COVID. Uh, and the third point is of paramount importance to achieve all of these changes, but in parallel ensure the safety and well-being of our security officers, which for companies like mine is absolutely, uh, absolutely key. When it comes to diversity and equality in the UK's private security sector, Mike, in your opinion, what needs to be done going forward? Well, look, the sector certainly reflects um, certain segments of our diverse society in many ways. The mix of different races, religions, ethnicities, you know, we we can find that in the sector in sizable numbers. But sadly, there are some key stumbling blocks which prevents us from being complacent. Um, I think there's a lack of gender equality and the fact that we don't see enough female security personnel and importantly we don't see enough diversity at the top tier of security management. Now interestingly my own company is launching an initiative this week um, which which is going to address that within within our company but I think this is a a sector-wide problem uh, which requires some real collaborative thinking to find out why we're not seeing colleagues um, you know from those sectors sort of moving up uh, into the top tier of security management. 
Now, you're a vice president and a former chair of the Security Institute, and you led the team in 2010 that, in conjunction with the Worshipful Company of Security Professionals, developed and then launched the Register of Chartered Security Professionals. Do you believe the register has gained enough traction during the intervening period, Mike? Well, again, that's a, a good question. I mean, I look back on the launching of the Register of Chartered Security Professionals with great pride, uh, and also on the partnership and cooperation with the Worshipful Company, and in particular with the then master, Don Randall, uh, and, and Peter French. I mean, since the launch of the register in 2011, it has attracted an extremely high caliber of applicants, with some 180 people now having been admitted to the register, which we term as the gold standard for security professionals. Personally, Brian, I, I believe that we can attract many more applicants, and at this time, we are witnessing a bigger and more determined campaign to spread the word, I'm now very confident that the number of registrants will continue to rise, although it's it's never really been a numbers game, but an endeavour um, not just about raising standards, but also to to, to really recognise the true professionalism in our sector in, in line with other professions. The police service is facing enormous challenges at this time, Mike. Can and indeed should the private sector be playing an increased role in supporting the police and law enforcement in general, and if so, how? Well, look, I think, you know, the police service exists primarily to enforce the law of the lands and the private security sector is there primarily to help secure and protect assets. Although what we've seen um, over the years, Brian, is is we, we witnessed some crossover to actual enforcement and sort of quasi-policing roles from the private sector with the Community Safety Accreditation Scheme and the Railway Safety Accreditation Schemes being prime examples. But there are other areas where the services of the private sector can deliver valuable support to the police and other law enforcement agencies. And examples of this include custody suite um, support, securing crime scenes and canine searches uh, and, sec and securing um, crime scenes. And, you know, why shouldn't that be conducted by the private sector? The fact is that we've got, a, you know, about 360,000 licensed security officers across the UK, all having been DBS checked and screened in line with BS7858. Uh, and that must be an indication that the trust between the police and the private sector can exist with, with those safeguards in place. So I think with a bit of imagination and a positive attitude, we can challenge the norms and enable much wider cooperation between police law enforcement and the private security sector. And post-COVID, Mike, and looking ahead to 2021 and beyond, will the UK's private security sector actually be any different? And what, in your view, might the changes look like? Well, uh, this is really an important issue. I, I think, like every other business sector, there are both challenges and opportunities uh, facing the private security sector. Um, but certainly, Brian, more of the same is out. Um, we can see the changing landscape of commercial property usage, due to the work from home guidance has already impacted on guarding contracts and a lot more innovation has come into play in the sector. Uh, for example, a reduction in the number of static guards on many sites, uh, especially in urban areas and offices, has led to more opportunities for mobile patrols, key holding services, as well as more multitasking by security personnel in facilities management and health and safety issues. Um, after all, the, the presence of security personnel in empty or part-occupied office space has meant that they've been the only constant during this crisis in terms of actually being on sites uh, and able to keep an eye on things. 
And I think that's something that's really significant to note, uh, that when other people have not been on site, our security officers have been there, albeit in, in some cases in, in fewer numbers, but they've been the ones that have been looking after those assets, uh, which has meant that their roles have been broadened out and their responsibilities increased. Returning to the news now and freedom of information requests submitted by IT security specialist Apricorn to 17 government departments relating to the security of devices held by public sector employees indicate that those departments have either lost or have had stolen upwards of 1,000 devices in the past year. The Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy misplaced a total of 193 devices while the House of Commons confirmed the total of 38 devices have been lost or stolen, 14 of which were lost on public transport with just 9 of the total number being recovered. Her Majesty Revenue and Customs reported 375 devices being lost or stolen between July 2019 and June this year, including 218 mobile devices, 132 Microsoft Surface Pro tablets, 12 laptop computers and 13 USB memory sticks. Alarmingly, of those 13 USB devices, only 5 were encrypted. The Home Office's annual report and accounts for 2019-2020 disclosed the loss of 2,404 inadequately protected electronic equipment, devices or paper documents from outside secured government premises, and a further 946 from within secured government premises. Additionally, the Department reported the loss of 11 inadequately protected electronic equipment, devices or paper documents from inside and outside secured government premises that had to be notified to the Information Commissioner's Office during the 2019-2020 reporting period. John Fielding, Managing Director for the EU MEA region at Apricorn commented, given that the pandemic and resulting lockdown have forced a large number of employees into remote working, this increase in misplaced devices is to be expected. It's now vital that organisations have the necessary systems in place to keep data secure and prevent criminals and opportunistic thieves from accessing sensitive information. Fielding continued, for government departments such as the Home Office and Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs that are responsible for sensitive data and the intellectual property of countless taxpayers, it follows that corporate approved and hardware encrypted storage devices should be provided as standard. Encryption is a must to ensure that, whether these devices are lost, stolen or forgotten, the data on them is unintelligible should they fall into the wrong hands. Encryption can often be sidelined by the security practices, and while many businesses are now encrypting data held on mobile devices and removable storage devices, it's clear that businesses must accept the need for digitisation and the benefits it delivers when it comes to storing documents, online backups, document management and remote working. The whole process is faster, more efficient and ultimately safer than offline equivalents. Organisations and particularly so those in the public sector directly responsible for such high volumes of sensitive data and intellectual property must absolutely recognise that compliance and security demand an ongoing effort. At a point in time when so many employees are working remotely due to the pandemic, policies must be enforced and those employees educated on the importance of keeping data secure, whether they're in the office or on the move. The Information Commissioner's Office has launched a public consultation on its draft statutory guidance, which itself details how the organisation will regulate and enforce data protection legislation in the UK. Supporting the ICO's primary responsibility of ensuring compliance with the law, the document explains the ICO's powers, when it will use them and how it calculates fines. The ICO, of course, is the UK's independent regulator for data protection and information rights law, upholding information rights in the public interest, promoting openness by public bodies and also data privacy for individuals. The ICO has specific responsibilities as set out in the Data Protection Act 2018, the General Data Protection Regulation, the Freedom of Information Act 2000, the Environmental Information Regulations 2004 and also the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations 2003. Designed to ensure that the rights and freedoms of individuals are protected, the draft guidance also seeks to provide assurance to business that the ICO will use its powers both proportionately and consistently. Speaking about the move, 
Information Commissioner Elizabeth Denham has commented, The primary role of the ICO is to protect the rights and freedoms of individuals in the digital age. This draft guidance explains how my office will achieve that goal. It sets out our proportionate approach towards regulatory activity and also details the robust action we will take against those that flout the law. A requirement of the Data Protection Act 2018, the draft statutory guidance explains how the ICO will exercise its regulatory functions when issuing information notices, assessment notices, enforcement notices and also penalty notices. It dovetails with the regulatory action policy which details how the ICO regulates the other pieces of legislation that it covers. The regulatory action policy itself is currently under review. This latest consultation will remain open until 5pm on Thursday the 12th of November. Those individuals wishing to voice their opinions and respond to the consultation can do so by accessing the ICO's website at www.ico.org.uk. The Security Industry Authority has just appointed Michelle Russell as the regulator's acting CEO. Russell will take up the role on 19th of October following Ian Todd's departure. Russell is currently the SIA's Director of Inspections and Enforcement. Immediately prior to joining the SIA, Russell served as a director at the charity regulator at the Charity Commission. Speaking about the announcement, Elizabeth France, Chair of the SIA, has commented, Michelle was selected following an internal competition. All authority members took part in the interview and selection process and were impressed by the candidates' performances. It confirmed our view that we have a very strong senior team here at the SIA. France continued, After careful consideration, we decided that Michelle Russell should take the SIA forward as acting CEO until a permanent appointment is made, which will probably be in about six months' time. Reflecting on her new role, Russell stated, I'm pleased and excited to be taking on this position. I look forward to working with the authority's members, the directors and staff here at the SIA in continuing to support the private security industry in protecting the public during these unprecedented times. The SIA, of course, is the organisation responsible for regulating the private security industry here in the UK, reporting directly to the Home Secretary under the terms of the Private Security Industry Act 2001. Its main duties are to oversee the compulsory licensing of individuals undertaking designated activities and also to manage the voluntary approved contractor scheme. Our second guest on this edition of the Security Matters podcast is Jeremy Hockham. Jeremy is the Managing Director at Norbane, the security, fire and IP connectivity systems distribution company. Jeremy joined Norbane back in 2015 with plenty of international industry experience, having served as President of Bosch Security in the US and also as Managing Director of Bosch Security here in the UK. He's also a former Managing Director of Honeywell Security and a past board member at Skills for Security. During our interview, Jeremy examines the developing role of distribution businesses and the recent launch of Norbane TV. First, I asked Jeremy for his thoughts on the current state of the security business sector in general. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the podcast today, Jeremy. Obviously, 2020 has proven to be a somewhat strange year due to the impact of COVID-19. Focusing on the security business sector itself, what are your thoughts on the current marketplace? Well, it's a pleasure to be talking to you, Brian, and, and obviously COVID-19 pandemic has clearly been a, a significant impact for us all and something none of us have experienced in our lifetimes before and hopefully never again. And the initial impact was um, was significant and very, very quick. But interestingly, as fast as um, the in- initial impact came, it started to recover quite quickly. And, it, and it's evident that um, certain parts of the marketplace and certain sectors have, have suffered, but others, it's created opportunities for others. And it's also accelerated change, some some that was happening anyway, and, and some that's new. You know, I've been in the security industry for 20 years now, and one of the great things about our industry is the ability to change and innovate quickly. And the way the manufacturers that we represent have responded and adapted to COVID-19 is impressive. 
and it, you know, it's it's clear that the security industry really has something to offer in these in these times, and providing technology that can keep our country moving, keep businesses and organisations open. And we've seen a real desire from everyone to adapt and develop solutions with real tangible benefits. And these benefits are obviously suitable for the short term, uh, such as providing contact-free uh, access control, mask detection, skin temperature measurement, and, and so on, uh, but also have a long-term advantages that end users can capitalise and make their businesses more efficient on an ongoing basis. And how do you see the role of the distributor now, and in what ways is that role developing, do you think? Well, there's, there's some things that uh, never change and, and probably are even more important in the current times. You know, for example, the ability to deliver what the customer wants when we say we will and to do that reliably time and time again. Uh, this is key and, and will never change. However, we've always believed that being a, a distribution partner is far more than just having great stock and getting goods to site on time. It's about making people's lives easier uh, and providing advice. You know, we, we are in a great position uh, because of the number of manufacturers that we represent to see trends developing in the marketplace. And we work along the suppliers, integrators and end users to ensure that the right solutions are being developed to meet their changing demands. And this is very much where our ethos of building relationships creating opportunities and providing solutions comes in. Our customers often talk to us about being us being an extension of their business, and that's what a good distributor is all about. But it's also clear and important to understand that different customers have different needs. Treating everyone the same simply doesn't work in today's environment. It's clear that whilst many of our customers still want to speak to an account manager directly, ask for advice and discuss product options, a growing number like to use the website for their own research, product selection and purchasing. And this, some, this is something that we're paying particular attention to. And we've developed a number of strategies to best meet the needs of different groups of customers. And as part of our overall strategy, we've been developing and will continue to develop our digital offering with our website that's at the fore of that. And in, say, in the same way as in our personal lives, we've relied on online services during this time. Our online visitors and customers have been growing strongly over the last couple of years, but extremely strong growth this year, particularly since May. And, and remote working has clearly paid a part in the shift and accelerated change that was happening anyway. And we believe that this is going to be permanent and we need to develop different tools that meet um, that they need to do their jobs uh, as effectively as possible in this changed world. Because of this, we've got significant plans to develop our digital and web offering during 2021. You've recently launched a new venture entitled Norbane TV. What was your thinking behind doing this, Jeremy? Well, the way in which we all assimilate information is changing. And, and video provides us a, with a great way of explaining often complex solutions in a really easy manner. But at the moment, we're focusing on our solutions for the new normal offering, and the videos quickly and simply convey what the advantages of a product are, how they can be used, and the problems they're solving. We've also started a series called uh, Industry Insights, where we share our views on the industry, and we'll be introducing product launches, how-to videos, uh, case studies, interviews, and so on. Uh, what we actually produce is viewer-led, so much of the content will be based specifically on what our audience wants to see. This very much plays to uh, adapting um, ourselves and to our view of the, the role of a distributor, constantly listening to, to feedback, adapting the way in which we approach the market 
introducing new suppliers and supporting the uptake of new technologies. But it's interesting with the, the last two, uh, two topics and two questions. Of course, it's not all about digital or new ways of preventing information. We know from feedback from our customers that they really still like the printed catalogue and there's still a strong demand for it. And a new edition has just been released. So we think the combination of print and digital ensures that whatever our customers are and whatever, however they like to work, they can access the information that they need. Now, Solutions for the New Normal continues to be a major promotional campaign for the business, of course. Can you tell us a little more detail about that and why you introduced it? Yeah, of course I can. Um, I mean, it was very clear very early on in the current pandemic that end users needed solutions to help make their environments safe as possible. And the security industry could really play a part in facilitating that. Our suppliers and manufacturers reacted very quickly to understand the changing needs of the market and develop and modify solutions that met those needs. And these range from contactless access control, thermal imaging products and health and safety solutions. And so to help our customers understand what these solutions were, how they worked and what problems they could solve, um, we decided to create the Solutions for the New Normal initiative. So if you go onto the website, you'll see a section dedicated to these products and be able to download a brochure that also includes some useful schematics and scenarios that helps everyone understand what solutions could be used and in which setting. And in your opinion, Jeremy, what's the outlook for the security industry in the short and medium term? Well, as for pretty much everyone, the pandemic has caused change and, and it isn't always a comfortable experience, uh, but it can create opportunities for those who embrace it. The security industry has shown that it can develop and adapt technologies to help solve problems that we're facing. So for our customers, this means that we're in a position to offer new solutions to their customers. It has also pushed certain technologies into the limelight, such as remote solutions, uh, and enhanced artificial intelligence. I believe under normal circumstances, there would have been a slower uptake of these types of technologies, but the pandemic has forced us, or perhaps provided us, with the opportunity to make a jump change in the way we think. And this is where a good distributor comes in. Our teams are working closely with customers, helping them to understand what technologies are available and what problems they can solve. We've created numerous resources to com help communicate and explain these technologies, including our website, Solutions for the New Normal, and the videos. And we have specialist uh, roles in the, and now within the business, whose sole purpose is to work with suppliers, installers, and end users to ensure the right solutions are being matched to the individual requirements. So I would urge anyone who would like to embrace the change that we're experiencing and find new opportunities to check out uh, all of these resources or, or just give us a call. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Mike Bluestone of Core Security and also Jeremy Hockham from Norbane for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, The Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly news bulletins. 
Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag SecurityPod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 